Easter is a time when we reflect on the glorious resurrection of Jesus Christ. And when we look at what all was involved in the events that led up to that moment, we begin to take note of three stark realities that resulted. Welcome to A Walk in the Word, where we bring you the Sunday sermons from Providence Baptist Church Gaston's worship services. In this week's sermon, Pastor John Friedrich dives into what those three realities are and why we have reason to rejoice because of it. Let's join in as Pastor Friedrich preaches a message entitled, The Cross, the Tomb, and the Throne, from Matthew chapter 28. All right, good morning. It's good to be gathered around God's Word uh, with everybody this morning as we see what He has for us today on this glorious Easter morning. Um, we can celebrate the fact that He is risen. Uh, not that He rose today, but that He is risen and has been since that day uh, uh, almost 2,000 years ago. So this morning we are going to be in the book of Matthew 28. Matthew 28, as I said, we're going to be read verses 1 through 7. In the end of the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, came Mary Magdalene and the other Mary to see the sepulcher. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat upon it. His countenance was like lightning, and his raiment white as snow. And for fear of him the keepers did shake, and became as dead men. And the angel answered and said unto the women, Fear not ye, for I know that ye seek Jesus, which was crucified. He is not here, he is risen. For as he said, Come, see the place where the Lord lay, and go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And behold, he goeth before you into Galilee. There shall ye see him. Lo, I have told you. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, as we come before your throne this glorious morning, we thank you for this opportunity to gather around your word as your people, Lord. We thank you for the opportunity to lift your name up in praise and worship and, and lift your name in song. Uh, Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to approach your throne with our petitions as well. Uh, you are truly an awesome and mighty God and worthy of all of our praise and honor, and it is a truly a privilege to serve you. And Lord, now as we go into this message, well, I just ask that you open our hearts and our minds to the truths that you want us to hear today, uh, truths that you want us to take from here and carry with us throughout the week and beyond, Lord. And Lord, I know I'm not worthy to be the one to stand before these folks and, and share this message. I just ask that you take me and use me as you see fit. Use me as your vessel. Take away anything that can in any way interfere with the message. Pride, selfishness, distraction, Lord. Just take it, remove it, fill me with your spirit that the words that I speak are only of your doing and not of anything of my own. And Lord, as a church, help us to continue to move forward, making the right decisions that bring us in more, in, more in line with your will that we might be doing all things in accordance with your purposes, that we might do all things in accordance with your uh, a, a tasking for us as a church, Lord, that we might always be outreach-minded, that we never turn inwardly and be uh, focused on ourselves. And as individuals, Lord, I just ask that you continue to show us the opportunities to share the gospel with those around us, share us, give us show us opportunities to be your hands and feet and to be your heart to those that we come in contact with. And Lord, forgive us of our sins and the times we've chosen to be our own God, to choose our own way, 
and to choose sin over doing what is right, Lord. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Today, obviously, we're gathering uh, on a day where we celebrate probably the single greatest of events in all of human history. And the, uh, the significance of the events that we celebrate during Easter uh, at this time can't be overstated. Uh, the, you know, the, the suffering of Jesus and the misery that he, that he, he went through, uh, the eternity of hope that it brings, the joy, the bliss, and the peace. These events literally change the course of mankind. You know, we celebrate Christmas, and it, it's, it's a pivotal event, too. You know, we, we, we come in, and we know that Jesus came into this world through that, uh, that uh, event that occurred. But really, when we think about it, what we celebrate as Easter was the reason he came into the world. He came into the world to, to pay for our sins, to suffer, and to die for our behalf, and to redeem us to the Father. The very reason that Christ took on human form and walked this earth was to die for you and me. And in so, he brings about the redemption of all of mankind and ultimately glorifying the Father in the end. Now, to, if we look at other religions and we ask them about the resurrection, we ask them about this whole uh, time period, <clears throat> it doesn't relate to anything that they have or they know about in their own faith. You know, in other faiths, their God is dead and gone. He's buried and forever gone. But in our faith, our God did not die. Did not die for eternity. He died briefly. He is very much alive today. And not just alive, but he is sovereign and ruling over all that exists. No other faith can make a claim like that, and yet at the same time, no other faith has so much evidence to support that kind of claim. We have got to remember there is an extraordinary amount of evidence supporting the resurrection of Jesus Christ. With the Easter story, there are certain truths that speak powerfully, though, to what was accomplished and what we should continue to recognize today. Those things are that the cross of Calvary today is bare. The tomb of Jesus today is empty. But the throne of Jesus today is occupied. So we're going to take a look at what the significance of these events mean to us. And let's take a look first at the bare cross. Now, if you look at just the cross, the cross in and of itself means nothing. Without the actions of Jesus Christ nearly 2,000 years ago, this instrument of pain, suffering, and death would mean nothing more to us than being simply another mechanism of ancient Roman execution. Merely another story of brutality from history exhibited by a government determined to keep its people in check. But instead, it became the very pivotal point of all of humanity. So much that was seemingly contradictory came crashing together that day on that cross. There was a point where justice was served and yet mercy was shown. It was a conduit through which God's hatred of sin was poured out, yet His love for the guilty flowed. It was a place where righteous judgment was demonstrated, yet grace was offered. 
This symbol that we have become so familiar with and identify so readily with was a place of impossibilities. So many seemingly contrasting aspects of God's character were satisfied at the same act of this peculiar symbol. His love, His hatred, His judgment, His mercy, His righteousness, His grace. It is the same symbol where all of those things were exhibited. All of God's attributes came together at one time. It's also a symbol that is so cherished by many, but at the same time reviled by others, particularly in the day and time that we live in. Even today, it represents contrasting expressions of a person. Some hate it. Some even see it as depicting hatred in and of itself, while others love it and see the cross as a symbol of peace, love, and forgiveness. For the Christian, it holds tremendous symbolic value. It represents the concept of sacrifice of self that we as believers in Christ are to live our lives by. We read in Matthew 16, 24, where Jesus tells his disciples, said, Then said Jesus unto his disciples, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. It is a symbol of self-sacrifice. The sacrifice of Jesus' life on the cross was still a ways down the road when he told them this. In fact, many of them were at a point where they didn't really understand what Jesus had alluded to that was coming. And yet he uses this analogy, expressing to his disciples, his apostles, the level of sacrifice that would be asked of someone who had given his or her life to Christ. Have you ever thought about why he might use that analogy? Why he would felt it appropriate to use the cross as a symbol of what it meant to follow Jesus himself? I mean, like I said, the apostles really hadn't taken in completely what was going to happen here. We see that in many cases where they didn't really understand what he was trying to tell them, all the way up to the point where it actually happened. And for you and me, with what the cross represents to us, I don't know that we even feel the magnitude of what Jesus is saying when he says, if you're going to follow me, take up your cross and follow me. To put it in today's concepts, Jesus might have said it, if you want to follow me today, you've got to face the firing squad. Today you've got to face the needle. We look at it from that perspective. It was an instrument of death. It was an instrument of execution. And Jesus chose to use this as the symbol by which to follow him. Remember what I said before, we have to be reminded that to fully grasp what scriptures are saying, we have to understand it in the context and in the time period of what was being said, along with the culture. And this is a perfect example. And it carries a tremendous significance when we look at it from that perspective. Jesus said, you must take up this instrument of death. Take up this instrument of sacrifice in order to follow me. You see, Jesus was communicating the complete self-sacrifice, the difficulty, the pain, 
the deliberate choice that we as believers must face each day in order to live the life that He intends for us to follow. It's not an easy life, mind you. Jesus never promised that to follow Him would make everything in your life a bed of roses, where everything would work out and be wonderful from our perspective. He did say it would work out for our better. But His idea of what's for our good and our idea don't always jive because we are fleshly and self-centered. But He also told us it would be difficult. It would be fought, fraught with challenges. It would be fraught with persecution. But you know what? The reward at the end is out of this world. Well, let's go back to Calvary that day, though. Such an incredible day. For the first and only time in past, present, and future, we see a disjointment of the Holy Trinity. As the darkness enveloped the land, God turned His back on His Son. Let's see in Luke 23, 44. And it was about the sixth hour that there was a darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. For three hours, the earth went dark. Pretty accurate description when you think about it of the state of things when God turns His back on us. Utter, complete darkness. This is a profound statement of God's disdain for sin. That He, at the very moment when Jesus took on the sins of the world, that He would turn His back on His very Son. The only Son of God. But it had to be done. This is there was simply no other way. Jesus would die carrying the sins of the world, and inasmuch He would die separated from the Father. A terrible, terrible position for anybody to be in. But every one of us that chooses to carry our sins to the grave, rather than embrace what Jesus did for us that day on the cross of Calvary, the place of the skull, we too will experience that very same separation with one difference. It will not be temporary. For an unbeliever, someone who dies in their sins without the forgiveness that Jesus Christ alone can offer, separation from God is for all eternity. That darkness that occurred is only the tip of the iceberg of what you will face as God forever turns His back on you. Even at the sight of Jesus' crucifixion, we kind of get a glimpse of what is yet to come. Because remember, there were two individuals that were crucified alongside Him. There was a thief to His right and a thief to His left. And the apparent positioning put Him right smack dab in the middle. Almost as if in a position of judgment. <laughs> Appropriately, considering the sign that was placed above His head, labeled him the king of the Jews. And even as he hung there, even as Jesus hung, suffering for our sins in an effort to secure the redemption of mankind, he demonstrated for us what was yet to come based on the choices that we make in this life. Because the thief on the right, we see, confesses and is granted eternal life. Today thou shalt be with me in paradise, Jesus tells him. That very day. The other, however, 
continues to reject Jesus, revile him, and is eternally condemned. It's a foreshadowing of what would yet be to come. But we'll get more into that later. Note by the end of the day, though, not just now, but even by the end of that day, the cross was bare. Jesus was no longer on that cross, and he is not on that cross today. His work there was done. So the cross stands bare. The next thing we need to take away from this is to remember that the tomb is empty. Now, the tomb holds for us some significance as well. And the events that occurred there hold for us a tremendous amount of truth that we need to take away. I've often pondered the fate of the guards who witnessed the angel rolling that stone away. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever thought about these guys that were there to make sure that Jesus' followers didn't come along and roll the stone away and pull that body out and run off with it so they could say, oh, he's risen. You know what the guards witnessed? The guards witnessed someone rolling the stone away that was angelic. Only to reveal that Jesus was already gone. You see, you got to remember that stone was rolled away not to let Jesus out, but to show the world that he had risen. No one needed to roll that stone away so that Jesus could escape the tomb, so to speak. No, it was open to reveal he was already gone. Anyway, back to the guards. The scriptures teach us that this guard, these guards are the ones who, after returning to the chief priest, after experiencing and witnessing this incredible event at the tomb, go back to the chief priest to explain what they had seen, only to be paid by the religious leaders of the day to keep their mouths shut. They were told, don't say a word, and we'll pay you for it. Now, I'd struggle with that whole concept. <laughs> The religious leaders, the very people that should be absolutely giddy with excitement that Jesus has risen from the grave, told them to shut up. Paid them for their silence. But you got to wonder, how did witnessing those events change their lives? How could they possibly see that and not be changed in some way. I mean, I would think that after witnessing that, no amount of coercion, no amount of bribery would be able to shut them up. There's a Christian movie I like that depicts a high-ranking Roman soldier who is tasked by Pilate after Jesus' resurrection. Convinced that his followers had stolen his body, Pilate tells him, you go find Jesus' body so I can prove to these people that this was all a conspiracy. He wanted to prove that the resurrection was a hoax. And in the course of this Roman soldier's investigation, he confronts these two guards. One of them he has to find and visit the temple protected by the Pharisees. And all he will say is a basically word-for-word -word answer. And he keeps repeating it. He won't say anything more. The Roman soldier realizes that he's just saying what he's been told to say. He tracks down the other soldier, or the other Roman guard. 
who has taken his money to try to drown his, his memory of what had happened. And this guy is an emotional wreck, trying to reconcile in his mind what he had seen, what he had witnessed, and he couldn't do it. And while this may be fictitious, this may be Hollywood's doing, or, or a something that was put together for, for a movie, you've got to understand that this has got to have had made an impact on these guards somehow. What they witnessed was supernatural. It was out of this world. And what about the chief priests? After hearing that the prophecy that they were very much aware of, mind you, had been fulfilled, those who you would think would be most familiar with it and most excited about what had happened chose to hush it. I think this speaks tremendously about the ability of the human heart to ignore even the most glaring of evidence and truths of God until they're almost beyond the reach of God. I mean, for a Christian it's easy. We see God all over the place. We see the hand of God in so much of our lives. And yet, there are those that, if they would open their eyes, it would be obvious, and yet they choose to ignore it as well. A terrible and frightening place when you consider it. Now what I find particularly intriguing about this is that the very people who are determined to deny the truth of Jesus and his resurrection by their actions basically provide us the greatest proofs that it happened. And look, we look at the facts the Bible presents for us. If Jesus had not departed the tomb, in other words, if his body was still present in the tomb, then the story would have ended there. Jesus was still dead in the tomb. No, he didn't rise from the grave. Look, there he is. He's still in the tomb. That would have been the end. But the guards had to deal with the reality that the stone meant to secure the tomb had been rolled away by an angel, no less. And we're not even getting to the significance of that right now, but upon revealing the inside of the tomb, they found it to be empty of the body of Jesus. Now, can you imagine the guards telling the chief priest, yeah, we saw an angel come and roll this stone out of the way. No one came stole the body. They rolled the stone and boom, it was empty. There was nobody there. And then the chief priest validated the truth of Jesus rising from the grave. How did they do that? Well, when they gave money in order to force them to lie, they proved that Jesus had, in fact, raised, risen from the grave. The ones who wished, wished to keep it quiet ended up being the, some of the strongest advocates of the reality of Christ's resurrection. And if, think what could have happened if they had only been willing to speak the truth themselves. The guards, eyewitnesses. Peculiarly enough, though, even some of his disciples struggled with what had occurred. Mary even asking what they had done with his body. Let's go back and think for a second. What did Jesus tell his followers? I'll rise on the third day. And yet Mary goes to the grave on the third day expecting to find a dead body. But after three days he had left. He was gone. 
no longer in the clothes of death. Instead of succumbing to the decay and stench of death, Jesus had arisen victorious, alive, and well. He handed us the victory over sin and death. As the song says, Sin, where are your shackles? Death, where is your sting? Hell has been defeated because the grave could not hold the king. What a glorious truth. And upon Peter and John's arrival at the tomb, the, girl, the ladies go back and they, they tell them, and Peter and John come running to the tomb. Note what they observe. John 26-7 Then cometh Simon Peter following him and went into the sepulcher to see if the linen clothes lie. And the napkin that was about his head, not lying with the linen clothes, but wrapped together in a place by itself. Jesus didn't leave with his grave clothes on. He said, I don't need these anymore. I'm leaving them here. He left the grave clothes behind. A clear statement. I'm not dead. I have no use for these. Contrast that with Lazarus. When Jesus called him out of his grave. Remember, Lazarus emerged from the grave in his grave clothes and had to be loosed by somebody else. Remember, he appeared at the opening of the grave and Jesus said, loose him from his clothes. The picture here is that Lazarus was going to need those again someday. In Jesus' case, he left the clothes behind because he would no longer ever need them. And he needed no assistance in removing them. He had the power over death and was done with it, as was indicated by the grave clothes being left behind. There was nothing there but the proof of his death and his departure. So we note that after the third day, the tomb was empty. Jesus was no longer in the tomb. His work there was done, and the tomb today still stands empty. The third thing we must consider in all of this is the occupied throne. You know, we've taken a look and we've seen that the cross is bare and the tomb is empty, so if he's no longer on the cross and he's no longer in the tomb, where do we find Christ today? On the throne. Hebrews 12.2 Looking into Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus today sits at the right hand of the Father. Right hand in a position of authority. He has finished his work here on earth. Now he reigns. Jesus himself declared that this would be true when he proclaimed in Luke twenty-two sixty-nine: 69, Hereafter shall the Son of Man sit on the right hand of the power of God. Jesus has conquered death. He has returned with the keys of hell. And he is sovereign above all. He will sit in judgment of the nations and he will sit in judgment of you and I. It is at that time that the redemptive work of the cross will be applied to all who believe in him and know him as Lord and Savior. The world we live today in, the world we have to deal with today, let's be honest, can be very discouraging for Christians. At every turn, we seem to lose our ability to freely express ourselves and practice our faith. And it's easy when we see these kinds of things happening to lose sight of the fact that not only does He sit on the throne of heaven, 
But he will reign forever and ever here on earth eventually as well. There is coming a day where he will set his throne up here on earth. And we need to look forward to that day. That day when our faith becomes our sight and we find ourselves in a place where we can rejoice. Rejoice in the risen Savior. Rejoice in the empty cross. Bear cross. Rejoice in the empty tomb. And to that I say, even so, Jesus, come. I can only imagine what it will be like that day when He returns for us. When our faith becomes sight. When our hope, the hope the Bible gives us, the El Peace, the forward-looking expectation becomes our reality. And that day when Jesus tells us as well, join me in paradise. But not everybody's going to hear those words. Not everybody is going to hear that joyous invitation to join Him in heaven. Because just as we saw on the hill of Calvary that day, the two thieves, one who embraced Jesus and who He was, at knowing He deserves the punishment that is to be meted out, and knowing that Jesus was sovereign over even that, sin and death. On the other hand, the thief that rejected Christ, riling upon Him, I don't need Him. If you're so powerful, get us down off this cross. Only to face that very day the beginning of an eternity of suffering in hell. The decision is yours. Just as the thieves on the cross made two very different decisions, there's no middle of the road. You either embrace Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, admitting you are a sinner in need of God's forgiveness and mercy, or you reject Him outright. I remember years ago we went to a production that a church had put on called Judgment House. And this production follows two people that make the two different decisions. One that makes a decision for Christ, one that rejects Him. And as we followed the one individual who rejected Jesus Christ, had, uh, he, 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 confronts the, he gets confronted by Satan. And he says, well, I never really chose you. To which Satan replies, when you didn't make a decision, you automatically accepted me. Meaning to re- not make a decision is the same as to reject Jesus. Because by saying, I don't really know, you're saying, I don't need Him. You're recognizing that in your heart, you're saying, I don't really need Jesus Christ. So I beg of you, on this day that we celebrate the risen Christ, don't wait. Whether you're here or at the sound of my voice, please, 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 whatever you do, recognize your need for the redemptive work of Christ on the cross of Calvary. Recognize your need for the forgiveness that only God can offer. Recognize that you, in and of yourself, 
have in no way a way to measure up to God's standards and embrace Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior today. Let's stand as we go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, as we come before your throne this morning, we are grateful for this time we've had together. Lord, we thank you for the truths that we have heard from your word today. And Lord, of this day that we celebrate your sons rising from the grave in victory over death and sin, we just pray, Lord, that all would see their need for Jesus Christ in their lives. That all would recognize their shortcomings and the fact that they can never measure up on their own doing. And they're only through the grace that you offer that we can have the righteousness of Jesus imparted upon us, that we would find ourselves acceptable to you. Lord, just have your will and way in all the lives that are here today, those that are at the sound of my voice. Let your spirit move upon them, that they might respond according to your will and purposes, and that you might be glorified. And Lord, we love you and praise you, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. Tune in next time for another Walk in God's Word. Podcasts are available in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music and Audible, Spotify, Stitcher, Pocket Cast, TuneIn, CastBox, Downcast, and BeyondPod. Search for and subscribe to Providence Baptist Church space-space Gaston Sermons. Until next time, may God bless you as we await his joyful return. Hi, this is John Friedrich, pastor of Providence Baptist Church. It's my prayer that our time together has helped you grow in your walk with God, or maybe he's even used it to guide you to discover the wonderful gift of salvation. If you're ever in our area, we would love for you to come worship with us. Our address is Providence Baptist Church, 977 Metafield Road, Gaston, South Carolina, 29053. If you'd like to contact us, you can do so through our website at www.providencembcgaston.com or email us at providencembcgaston at gmail.com. Again, thank you for tuning in, and we look forward to you joining us next time as we take a walk in the Word.